And by the end, this brings up another very specific scene to us as well, too, and that's uh, the scene of the, the nativity. Everybody know what the nativity scene is, right? We have the nativity scene, the humble nativity scene. As you've you know, been busy buying last-minute presents uh, for, your, for your family, uh, you can also remember the one important thing about the nativity scene is that, that the wise men, wise men actually brought presents to the newborn baby Jesus. Right, and that's kind of what I. They were special gifts. And that's what I want to talk about today. Is those is those gifts, and one in particular, the special gifts that they gave to Jesus. So I'm guessing many of you, when you think of a manger scene, you probably think of something that was at maybe at your grandmother's house when you were growing up. And uh, if you're thinking about the manger scene, you're probably thinking of the wise men and their nice porcelain robes. Right, it's a big ornate little nativity scene. It's all made out of porcelain, and uh, it's very delicate. And uh, actually, that's, that's the one that's at my, my parents' house right now, too. They have a porcelain nativity scene. And there's a million different toys at my parents' house that my kids can play with. But the one thing they always go for is the thing that's extremely delicate. I don't know why. It's always going for the things that, they always go for the things that are either dangerous or very delicate. And they're always playing with They're always moving around. You know, Joseph ends up next to uh, the wise men. The wise men ends up next to Mary. Jesus is I don't know where. But uh, it's always something that the kids are drawn to. So much so that I actually bought my kids a Fisher-Price nativity scene because I knew that they'd be playing with it all the time. And the Fisher-Price one is made out of rubber. So I know that, you know, it's not going to get broken. And in most nativity scenes, you know, you probably see some farm animals. You see some shepherds. Sometimes maybe an angel at the top. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, always a baby Jesus at the bottom that has sometimes a light that shines up from underneath it to make it look holy, you know. But uh, these nativity scenes, you know, you have to, they're, very, they're very ornate and delicate. And, you know, God forbid someone picks up, you know, baby Jesus and drops it into a million pieces, right? It's a very, very delicate thing. But anyways, just like most things we celebrate at Christmas, there's always people proclaiming that what we celebrate is not entirely historically correct, right? And, uh, you know, they're always a, kind of a, a, a buzzkill with, with the nativity scene, Right? But, uh, you know, it's okay. Some theologians argue that the wise men were not actually in attendance at Jesus' actual birth. And on top of it, there, there probably were more than even just three of them. Those are, we just remember the three gifts, so we assume that there's three wise men. But there were probably quite a few more wise men than just, just three of them. But when they finally did remember, when they finally did arrive at the nativity scene, it's probably, they probably weren't even at the manger scene anymore. They were probably in a house as well, too, because remember, when a child is born and the wise men are from way off places, it takes a long time. There was no planes to get to Bethlehem. There was no, they couldn't catch an Uber to get to Bethlehem. It took them time to get there. So by the time they got there, their primary was probably already in a house as well, too. And, uh, you know, another thing that's really interesting about this, what theologians argue as well, too, is that when the wise men arrived, it's possible that Jesus wasn't even an infant anymore. He could have been around 18 months or so when they actually arrived uh, to, meet, uh, to meet Jesus. And that puts a whole different perspective on the nativity scene. It doesn't change the story, but it does change the perspective. Because if you could think of Jesus being an 18 months, because if anyone has ever had a toddler, anyone here had a toddler before? Anyone remember what it was like to have a toddler? I have a I have a two year old right now, and I can tell you that it's 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 you know she is into everything. She's running all over the place. She's getting into things, you know. And I could just imagine baby Jesus running around all over the place too, and they're trying to give him the gifts, the three gifts. So it does change things a little bit, but uh, you know it doesn't change the story itself, the miraculous story. 
You know, I used to say this often too about, by the way, about toddlers as well too. Before I had kids of my own, I used to always judge parents that had toddlers, you know, running around and screaming like, I can't just take control of your child. Man, have I ever had a big slice of humble pie now that I've had four of them? And, you know, one thing you have to remember about toddlers is that it's all about survival. It's 100% about survival. You're never going to hear judgment from me again on how you are parenting your toddler because it, you know, it's about survival. You do what it takes. If you're at a restaurant and you can't have a word edgewise with your wife or your, the people that you're with, no judgment. Give them the phone. Let them watch Baby Shark 100 times. It doesn't matter, right? Because it's about survival. It's about survival, you know, and uh, I, I've, I've learned that the hard way. But, you know, with toddlers, I've learned one thing. One thing I'll, I'll give to any, you know, upcoming parents as well, too, is you never negotiate with terrorists, right? So if you have a toddler, just give them what they want. No judgment. No judgment at all. So the manger scene may be a little different than the, than the one that we see at Christmas, the wise men bowing down, offering gifts to, to maybe a toddler. You know, even that, that's a miracle in and of itself, right? Because uh, if they're bowing down to a toddler, uh, you know, and a toddler without sin, a toddler without sin, that's a miracle in and of itself, so it has changed it a little bit. But besides all of this, it doesn't change the impact of the story, especially when it comes to the gifts that the wise men brought. And uh, I want to look at the text to see why these gifts were also very important as well, too. So if you turn to uh, Matthew 2, verses 10 and 11, it says this, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. This is the wise men that we're talking about. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Unusual gifts in our day and age, uh, you know, but, uh, and I've received some <laughs> unusual gifts. Speaking of unusual gifts, you know, sometimes back when I was in Montreal when we were kids, we'd sometimes get some unusual gifts from the people in the church. People in Montreal were very generous with their, their gift giving, and uh, we got some, some funny gifts. Sometimes I got a, a woman's gold necklace for some reason as a Christmas gift that my mom took. Uh, I got another thing that we got. This is really funny. When, when Dave and I were probably, you know, 14 and, and 17, uh, we got these, these, and this was before it was ironic, but we got these onesies, these, these onesies, these giant onesies that we could wear like we were like giant toddlers or something. And it had even the button-up flap at the back for when you have to go to the bathroom. And, you know, at 14 and 17, you're, you're too cool for school, so it's not like you're going to wear them. But these were unusual gifts. And, you know, we look at the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it's unusual as well, too. Uh, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they're, they're actually very valuable gifts and very useful gifts. And gifts that were really, really symbolic in their nature, that each prophesied who Jesus would become. So normally we think that the prophetic comes in either written or spoken form. But in this case, it was actually through gifts, which is why receiving gifts that are meaningful you know, are a whole lot more valuable to you than things that are just, you know, a pair of uh, uh, AirPods or whatever or soda stream that you get. Something that has meaning to it, something that today it's still a good idea to invest in gold, right, I think? So, so, okay. Well, usually as people like to receive gold anyways, it's still considered very valuable and it has been throughout history, you know, but uh, actually gold in this case, the gift of gold actually symbolized the kingship of Jesus as Jesus king, as king. Frankincense symbolizes Jesus, our great high priest, who would offer his life. He's the one who sympathizes with us, who understands us, who goes to the Father on our behalf. That's what it represents. The gift of myrrh, this is the interesting one for me today, and this is what I want to focus on today. You know, most people probably don't know anything about myrrh. 
but it's actually a valuable, it's like a gum-like substance. And uh, it's actually used 17 times in the Bible. And occasionally, myrrh would have been used as an antiseptic. Uh, but more commonly, though, myrrh was known as an ingredient used to embalm the dead. It's very interesting, isn't it? If, uh, if someone gave my child some embalming fluid for as a gift, I'd be pretty upset. But this was a valuable thing. This is something that was very valuable. You know, in other words, myrrh would have actually been used actually when Jesus died to help prepare his body after the crucifixion. Right? So myrrh actually represents Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God. Myrrh uniquely prophesies Jesus' purpose here on earth. That he was born to die as a sacrifice for our sins, which to me actually makes myrrh the most interesting gift because of what it says about Jesus. Amen? So even when we look back at the Old Testament, uh, everything, lined, everything actually in the Old Testament actually lines up, it actually lines up and actually points to Jesus. And, uh, you know, if you read Isaiah chapter 53, we could see why myrrh was the gift that outlined what was required of Jesus to bring redemption to us all. And, uh, you know, Isaiah is actually an incredible book. Uh, if you haven't read it, like it, Isaiah is an unbelievable book that is always pointing to Jesus. So let me give you some perspective here. I'm curious. Who here is a hockey fan? Come on. Who here is a hockey fan? We're Canadians. Who here is a hockey fan? Don't worry about the Habs game last night. It was a little disappointing. But anyways, who here is a Habs fan? Anyone here is a hockey fan knows that, uh, you know, what if I did this? What if I did this? What if I told you that I could predict who the final in the Stanley Cup was going to be for, like who was going to actually play in the Stanley Cup. That would be pretty impressive, right? What if I could also tell you, though, what the final score would be and who would actually score all the points? That would also be really impressive, wouldn't it? That would be pretty prophetic. Now, stay with me here for a second. What if, uh, you know, 700 years from now, let's pretend that 700 years from now, in the year 2720, uh, you know, pretend the world is still here, pretend that people are still playing hockey for some reason, Okay, what if I could 700 years from now predict who would be in the finals of the Stanley Cup and what score would be made and who would make the actual goals? Imagine that. That'd be pretty impressive, right? That'd be pretty impressive. That'd be a pretty good profit. And if you play pro line, you'd probably want to be my best friend. But, uh, you know, this is something that, and Isaiah did something way better than sports scores here in this. What he did, that he did something even greater than that. Okay, he actually predicted the entire life of Jesus, how he was born, and also how he would die. And it's a very detailed account of what the Savior Jesus would endure on our behalf, right from the beginning, right to the end. So why is this important? Because we have a real problem. We all have actually a, a real problem that we're dealing with, a problem that we can actually never resolve on our own. And it's a problem that only Jesus could actually fix, a problem that he actually fully paid for. And we can only, you know, we can only uh, be forgiven and experience eternal life through him, not by, not by anything that we can actually do. And the problem is explained in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 53, when Isaiah the prophet says this, We all like sheep, gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on him, the iniquity, iniquity of us all. That's in Isaiah. He, Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was born. Isn't that just incredible? We've left God's path to follow our own path. That's the problem that we're facing. And Isaiah says that you're all like sheep. And unfortunately, saying we are like sheep is actually not a compliment. All right? Sheep are cute. Their wool is useful. But telling, you, telling us that we're like sheep, it's, it's not a compliment. 
If Isaiah had said maybe, you know, you're all like lions, that would have been pretty cool, right? That would have been pretty neat. Or if he said you're all like eagles, fantastic, that would be great. But no, he compares to sheep. So what he was essentially saying is that we're not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> Why? Well, if you think about sheep, you know, you, you, can train, you, can train, you can train a lot of animals. You can train a dog easily. You can some, you sometimes train a cat. I've seen people do that. You can train a hamster. You can train elephants. You can train dolphins. You know, you can train a lot of animals. You can train a pig, right? But you cannot train a sheep. A sheep cannot be trained. It can't be trained. Have you ever gone to the circus and watched the amazing sheep training act? It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. You can't train a sheep. So, you know, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Sheep are generally kind of weak, too, and, and kind of mindless, and they're wayward, and, and, they're, and they're stubborn as well, too. So, you know, they're also pretty defenseless when you think about sheep as well. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have claws. They don't have camouflage. They just have this big white woolen coat, which contrasts with just about everything. They're essentially defenseless, and they're also not fast either. You know, they, they also don't think for themselves. Sheep tend to follow the crowd. If one sheep does something dumb, all the other sheep will follow and do the same dumb thing, right? I know I'm being harsh about sheep here, but here i got a story to tell you as well, too. And this is a story that's, that's true. Uh, you know, you can, you can look it up. I Google it if you want to. But in 2005 in Turkey, there were uh, 1,500 sheep that actually all followed each other off a cliff. One after the other, they just ran right off a cliff, 1,500 of them, because one of them decided to go and they thought it was a good idea, and they all followed suit and did the same thing. The fortunate part is about this is that because there's 1,500 of them, only 400 of them died because the first 400 made a nice bouncy pillow of sheep. So at least 1,100 of them survived, right? But like sheep, they went astray, and they went off a cliff. It's incredible. So when Isaiah calls us sheep, it's really not complimentary because sheep wander. They get lost. Sheep need shepherds. Sheep need shepherds. They need, they need the dogs even sometimes to, to, to shepherd them away, to make sure to keep them from harm, to tell them where to go and where not to go. So why do sheep wander? They wander because they're looking for something. They're looking for something. Sheep go on their own path. We, like sheep, we go on our own path. We're, we're looking for something. Right? We're looking for something that, uh, that we think that we need, that we need to go after. You know, I'm not going to come to church on Sunday because I really need to go after this job. Uh, or I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to follow God because I, I really need to focus on, on you know, my, my career aspirations. You know, we all follow our own paths because we think that our path is greater than the great shepherd's path. Right? And if you think about it, you know, we are so like sheep. What's the main excuse for, for people for not following God? Well, everybody else does it, so I'm going to do it myself too. Everyone else is doing it, I'm going to do it. You're just a sheep jumping off a cliff. Greater. Again, Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, and he's talking about Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him, the one we are celebrating this week, the one Jesus, the Lord laid on him the sins and the iniquity of us all. Amen? Now remember, again, this was 700 years before the birth of Christ that Isaiah prophesied, that he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. This is Isaiah saying this about Jesus. He was laid like a lamb to the slaughter. Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever been rejected? Have you ever been overlooked, unjustly criticized, you know, misunderstood? Jesus understands all of that. He understands every part of that. 
It was prophesied of him that he would be despised and rejected, that he would be a man of sorrows, that he would be acquainted with the deepest grief, that he would turn, that we would actually turn our backs on him and look the other way, that, that he would be despised and that we would not care. And it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that actually weighed him down. And it says in Isaiah, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. That's what Jesus does and does for us and continues to do for us. You know, it seems like when people think of the manger scene, you know, and they, they see the baby, baby in there, they think, well, yeah, that was a holy event. You know, that happened a long time ago. What does that have to do with me today? You know, you might even say, yeah, okay, Jesus died on the cross. That's historical, you know, and he rose again, maybe, all right. But, uh, you know, what, why should I follow Jesus? Even if he did all that, why should I follow him? Why should I devote my life to him? You know, when you understand the magnitude of his suffering, when you understand, the, you know, the depths of his love, you can't just casually say, you know, I'm a Christian, yeah, and I go to church when I have time. Uh, you know, you might as well pray over the food, I guess. You know, you, you can't do that. No, when you understand actually what he did for us, when you understand the birth, his whole life ministry, and that his death on the cross, was, when you understand what he did for us, the sacrifice, and that declaration of divine love, the only reasonable response is to wholly and completely follow him. That is the only response you can possibly have, even at Christmas right now, recognizing the holy birth, the sacrifice that was made for us. Yeah, we're like sheep, and sheep need a shepherd. Even when I think I have it all figured out, you know, my heart will still send me wayward sometimes because I'm human. And sometimes it'll send me to a dangerous cliff, right? Because it's in my nature. I'm a sheep. And you know, when you think about today, too, uh, the popularity, in, even in the business world, of coaching and mentoring and, and leadership development, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because that's actually filling a void. It really is. There is an innate nature for us to have some form of shepherding on us, and that is Jesus, that Jesus fills that void. But, you know, the world has all these other answers that it tries to put onto us. But the real shepherd, the good shepherd, the one we're meant to follow is the one that will never take us off a cliff, and it's Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we don't really talk about the sacrifice of Jesus much uh, during Christmas because it's a celebration of his birth. But the gift of myrrh reminds us right from the beginning what Jesus was actually born to do. And uh, when we look in the Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus wrestled with God, when he got a glimpse of the suffering that he was about to face, and all alone he cries out to God, God, would you remove this cup of suffering from me? And then he fell to the ground and, and blood actually dripped from his brow, uh, which is actually a, a true medical uh, situation. It's called uh, homi, homosiderosis. And it's basically when the capillaries uh, in your head, they burst and then the blood mixes with your sweat and drips sweat. And that only happens as he knew exactly what was coming. He knew right from his birth what his purpose was. And uh, he also said when he fell to the ground, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, where he had to ask God, is there another way that we can do this? You know, he's asking his father, Father God, is there another way that we can, we can save mankind? There's another way we can do it. But knowing who he was and, and what he was born to do, he declared faithfully, yet, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was not wayward. He was not wayward. He was about his father's business. His destiny was set at birth. It was prophesied at birth through the gifts of these wise men. The destiny was the pain and suffering that he endured on the cross. So how hard it must have been actually for God the Father, you know, uh, seeing his son born into a world that immediately wanted to see his destruction 
when you think about that, even on the manger scene, Herod was after all the, the children. He, the, death was after him right from when he was born, right till when he was dead. And how hard it must have been for the father to witness that and to witness, you know, first Herod going after Jesus and then at the end all of mankind putting him on the cross and, and mocking, mocking his son and, and seeing him crucified. How hard that must have been for a father. And if a father's out, fathers that are out here right now, how hard it must be to see your children going through that kind of suffering when you think about it. And as awful as the crucifixion was, probably the most painful part was now being separated from his father, the innocent one who had never sinned. You know, he bore the sins of the world. He became everything vile, everything sick, everything decrepit that's out there. Think of the worst thing you can think in the world right now, the absolute worst, disgusting thing. Jesus took that on to himself when he died on the cross. He became that. And God in his righteousness and holiness, he could not look at that type of sin anymore. He had to pull away. The intimate relationship that Jesus had always known with his father suddenly became broken. And in probably the most, you know, agonizing moment of his life, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, where are you? Why aren't you with me? Why have you forsaken me? Because he didn't have that connection with God anymore. And if you think about it as a parent, you know, what would be the most hurtful thing is to see your, parent, your child saying, you know, Daddy, where are you? Daddy, I can't find you. I can't see you. Imagine what that would feel like. It's painful, isn't it? It's painful. And as horrible as it is, the, the incre- there's actually incredible poetry in it all as well. It's actually really interesting poetry in it. Because on the cross, Jesus was on, once again offered a gift. He was offered, actually offered a gift from the Roman soldiers. They offered him wine mixed with the very same substance that he was given as a child. He was offered wine mixed with myrrh. The very thing that they would use to embalm him when he died. And what did Jesus do? He actually refused it because he knew that the pain and suffering was actually part of the process that he had to go through to save us. He didn't want to numb the pain at that point. Jesus was born and died to finish what his father had sent him to do. And when the sacrifice was accepted, Jesus shouted, Tetelestai, it is finished. What was prophesied in the wise men's gifts at his birth was finished. When he died on the cross, it was finished. What the prophet Isaiah prophesied 700 years before was finished. It was all finished at the cross, amen? I don't know about you, that, that, just, that is just incredible poetry. It is incredible, incredible, incredible thing. That's what he did for us. Think about it for a moment. What is it that actually sets Christianity apart from other world religions? What sets Christianity apart from Islam, apart from Buddhism, you know, apart from Hinduism, New Age? What sets us apart is actually the sacrifice of an innocent victim. That's what sets us apart. And it goes way back to the Old Testament to something called Passover, where once a year God would execute his, his righteous judgment on the sins of the people. And what could protect you in those days, in the, during those times in the, the, the Old Testament, from the judgment? It was the blood of an innocent lamb. The judgment passed their household. So the blood of the lamb actually reversed that judgment. And when you think about that, let's be honest, it's a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that today, would you? You want to do that at Passover, slaughter a lamb and paint blood on your, on your door. So that's, it's a bit it's a bit strange. It seems kind of unfair. It's confusing. But even in this historic event, we see the cross foreshadowed. When the blood of the lamb was put on top of the doorpost, you also see a picture of the cross, that instrument of torture, you know, where Jesus' blood was spilled upon as well, too. Again, it's showing the full circle, the whole story of what God wanted to do to save us for the forgiveness of our sins. So what separates Christianity from all the world religions is that God would become flesh. He would become pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, being so that we can made whole, and by his stripes, by his wounds, we're healed. God flipped it. 
He flipped it so that our salvation could not be attained by anything else. We couldn't do anything about it. It wasn't by any effort that we could do by ourselves. It was all God, done by God and fulfilled by God. Amen? It's only done by what he did. And that's fantastic. Right, man. So when you see the nativity scene this week, when you see it this week with the, with the wise men and the gifts that they gave Jesus at his birth, remember the significance of the myrrh, the significance of the substance, the same substance that was used to embalm the dead, the same substance that was used to clean wounds, right? The same substance that was used for an antiseptic. God was foreshadowing what was to come, that the, the Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world, to clean our wounds and, and the infection of sin. Jesus understood this, and he even actually prophesied over himself in Luke 9. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said this to them all. Whoever wants to be my disciple, so this is an important part. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple. You know he's talking about us there, right? He's talking about us. We are his disciples. What Jesus did not say here is when, you'll, when you believe in me, don't worry, nothing else bad is going to happen to you anymore. It's all going to be great. It's all going to be rosy. It's all going to be peachy. He didn't say that once you believe in me, you're going to be prosperous and everything is going to go perfectly. He didn't say that. He also didn't say, you know, when you believe in me, you can also stay a wayward sheep. He didn't say that either. You can't be a wayward sheep jumping off cliffs anymore. What he said was, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to deny yourself. You have to deny your sheepiness. You have to deny it. Take up your cross. In other words, die to yourself. Remove that sheepskin. Take it off and follow me. Christianity is not a hobby. It's not an add-on. It's not something that, that helps us feel good while we celebrate, you know, Santa. You know, the message of Christmas is this, is that God became flesh and that God is with us here on earth. That's the message of Christmas. And when you understand that, it overwhelms and overtakes your life and you cannot help but make it a lifelong quest to seek after him. He became the lamb sacrifice for our lives to cover all our imperfections, to cover our hypocrisy, to cover our judgment, to cover our greed, to cover our anger, to cover our unforgiveness, to cover our wicked hearts. He became that lamb to cover that. And because of what he did, you know, I don't follow him to, you know, because it makes me a better person. You know, I don't follow him because he gives me preferential treatment even. You know, I don't follow him because he gives me something to do on Sundays. That's not why I follow him. I follow him because of who he is. I follow him because of who he is and what he did. That's why I follow him. That's why I give my whole life to him. That's why I'm passionate about him. And that's why you should too. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice. Father God, today we ask that as your church that we would honor you. You are worthy of our praise, Lord. You're worthy of our praise. And we reflect today on your life and what you gave us. And we cannot help but marvel at the beautiful pattern of your life illustrated in your word. Lord, sometimes it's easy to get caught in the demands of life, especially this time of year. And you know, it may be in a bit of a while since we, we told you how thankful we are for the gift that you have given us, the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You are worthy of our praise. And there is none like you, Lord. There is none like you. Amen. Hallelujah, Lord. Amen. Those of you who are followers of Christ, you know, if you can right now, raise your hands to the Lord. Let's just thank him this morning, right before Christmas, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just give a shout of praise and thank the Lord this morning for the sacrifice he has made. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. 
Lord, we recognize what you've done for us. We, we live for you. We no longer want to be wayward sheep. Lord, we want to follow your path and not our own. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your gift. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Hallelujah.